This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. Tonight, I'm pleased to introduce Kristen R. Godsey to Politics and Prose. Godsey is professor of Russian and Eastern European Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. She has written six books on gender, socialism, and post-socialism in Eastern Europe. Her articles and essays have appeared in publications such as Eurozine, Dissent, Foreign Affairs, Jacobin, The World Policy Journal, and The New York Times. In Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism and Other Arguments for Economic Independence, Godsey draws upon her years of researching women in countries that transitioned from state socialism to capitalism in order to argue that capitalism, in fact, is the enemy of what it purports to champion, the idea of having it all. Under socialism, and when done right, women can experience not only economic independence, but better labor conditions and also better work-life balance. And who doesn't want that? Under capitalism, women experience the gendered wage gap and reinforce gendered stereotypes, which encourage women to work second shifts as caregivers. Yanis Varoufakis, author of Adults in the Room, writes, Capitalism's triumph is a calamity for most women. Kristen Godsey's book reveals brilliantly their plight. Now, please join me in welcoming Professor Kristen Godsey. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for that introduction. I think before I actually talk a little bit about the book tonight, I'm going to just read a section of the of the prose so that you get a taste of what the book sounds like. And then I'll talk a little bit about the writing of the book and um, sort of the general arguments. And then I'm happy to take lots of questions and have a discussion. Um, so the first thing I want to say is the title of the book is Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism. But the subtitle is really important. It's And Other Arguments for Economic Independence. Because... Um, as many of you may know, when you write a trade book, you don't always have final say over the title that, that, that you get. So um, I will say that I'm, you know, this is my book, but the subtitle is the really important part. So there are six chapters in the book, and two of them do, in fact, deal with sex. So there is some truth in advertising here, but four of them don't. Um, and what they deal with instead is the status of women in under state socialism and democratic socialism in Europe. So the Part of the book that I'm going to read to you tonight is from chapter two, which is called What to Expect When You're Expecting Exploitation on Motherhood. <laughs> so one of my childhood friends, whom I will call Jake, hungered for financial success in a society where financial success reflected a kind of moral superiority. Jake valorized the idea of the American dream. He saw goodness in the kind of Horatio Alger, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, hard work required to make something of yourself. Back then, I was already a feminist with concerns about economic inequality, and Jake, true to the spirit of the 1980s, believed that whoever dies with the most toys wins. We spent hours debating the pros and cons of capitalism and the ways that Thatcherism and Reaganism sucked or didn't suck. Jake embraced the Gordon Gecko zeitgeist of the age. Greed is good. I wasn't buying it. But back in those days when domestic politics weren't so polarized, we managed to maintain our friendship throughout our college years. In the 1990s, while I was off teaching English and reading Karl Polanyi in Japan, Jake was hustling his way up the corporate ladder at a tech startup. One day in 1997, Jake informed me with great pleasure that he'd hired a promising young woman for a strategic position in his firm. She'd been a finalist with two other men, and with my voice ringing in his ears, he decided to take a chance on her. 
They were all equally qualified on paper, he told me. But after years of listening to your feminist rants, I convinced my boss that since women face so many barriers in tech, she had actually worked harder to get where she was than the men in the pool. I was struggling through my first year of graduate school at the time, and Jake's news warmed my heart. I'd made a little difference in the world. Over the next few years, the woman proved herself clever, competent, and hardworking. Jake's company gave her a three-month paid sabbatical for some additional training, grooming her for a promotion. Then she announced that she was pregnant. The startup had no formal maternity leave policy, but Jake asked his boss to give her 12 paid weeks to stay home with her baby and make childcare arrangements. Jake argued that they had already invested so much money in her training that a 12-week leave would pay for itself in the long run. His boss reluctantly agreed. The woman returned to work after the birth of her baby and tried her best to keep up with the demands of a small startup. But she was nursing, and the baby kept her up at night. She would attend meetings bleary-eyed and unprepared. She called in sick when the nanny didn't show. She found a place in a good nursery, but if her son got sick, they sent him home. Her husband traveled for business, and she had no family in the area. Jake always the optimist, believed that things would improve once the child was older. He even offered to babysit in a pinch. His star employee managed to hold on for six months. Then she quit. That night, Jake called me to share the news. Dejected and frustrated, he told me, I'm never hiring another woman again. But she's just one woman, I said. Not every woman is going to make her choice. There's no way my bo boss will let me, he said. His voice was low. And it's the baby thing. I can't be sure of anything about any employee, but I can be certain that a man won't have a baby. I think I hung up on him. But it really wasn't Jake's fault. What could he do in a system that provides no support for women when they become mothers, that forces women to choose between their careers and their families? Economists call this statistical discrimination, the basic idea is that since employers can't directly observe the productivity of individual workers, they can make observations about demographic characteristics that are correlated with worker productivity. They make decisions based on averages. If women are more likely to quit than men for personal reasons, employers assume that any given woman is more likely to quit than a man. Economists observe that the theory of statistical discrimination can create a vicious cycle. If women are, or used to be, more likely to quit, they will be paid less. If they are paid less, they are more likely to quit. This vicious cycle provides a very good justification for government intervention. I'll stop right there. So the idea of the book is uh, to talk about the ways in which women's care work is not valued in a free market economy. Uh, and it, this is also not specifically to women. Anybody who does care work in our economy is going to be disadvantaged in a competitive labor market where care work is seen as something that's done in the private sphere. So the argument that I make in the book, broadly speaking, is that when the state steps up and socializes some of the care work that needs to be done, and this can be either child care, but it can also be things like elder care or care for the, the, the ill and the infirm, they take some of the burden away from women in the private sphere or those who are responsible for primary caregiving, which in the case of the United States today is largely women. So I 
try to um, talk about a couple of different policies that are possible, uh, among them paid maternity leaves, uh, things like federal support for childcare, um, and uh, different, for, different forms of support for working families. Um, but there are a, there's sort of a broader set of policy considerations that I'm happy to go into in the question and answer period. But what I think is unique about this book, because I think plenty of people in the United States have talked about things like childcare and have talked about uh, Medicare for all or housing as a human right in a variety of socialist policies or social policies that could be put into place to help working families um, achieve uh, work-family balance in this country. I think what's unique about the book is that I am trying to look at the historical situation of socialism. Uh, whether we talk about state socialism in Eastern Europe or democratic socialism in Scandinavia and in some cases Western Europe, different policies that can be put into place, again, to kind of mitigate the burden of care work that is placed on women in the, in the, in the private sphere. And so I think the reason that the book is controversial, and I know it's controversial <laughs> because I've gotten plenty of criticism for arguments that I've made, not only in this book, but in a previous op-ed that I wrote in the New York Times and for some of my previous scholarly work, is this idea that um, care work, uh, particularly child care and elder care and care for the elderly, should be socialized. Uh, there are a lot of debates about this. These debates go back all the way to the middle of the 19th century. These are not new debates. I think for a lot of young people in the United States, they're just coming to these debates for the first time. But I do think that there's a way in which we can learn from the past. One of the things that I make very clear in the book, and I want to make very clear tonight, is that I am not in any way advocating for any kind of return to 20th century state socialism. Uh, there were many, many problems with uh, this, uh, these societies, uh, among them the purges and the gulags and the famines and state censorship and travel restrictions and consumer shortages and all the things that I'm sure many of you have heard of when you think of the stereotypes of Eastern Europe. What I'm trying to do in this book, and, and this is not only my project, but this was the project of many historians and ethnographers who have done research in the region for the last 30 years, and in some cases even prior to the collapse of communism, is to say that, look, everything in these societies wasn't completely black. Uh, it wasn't just one big gulag with people walking around with shaved heads and uh, mouse suits, which is the imagination that many people in this country have of state socialism in Eastern Europe. Uh, people are always um, imagining a world in which everything was about starvation and uh, censorship and police surveillance and brutality. But we know that people had lives, people, uh, you know, went to school, they got married, they had children, that there was an entire world behind the Iron Curtain, which ethnographers and historians and, in fact, people in the region themselves are willing and able to talk about that we in the West don't understand or don't hear about or we're unwilling to understand or hear about. And so I think the overriding goal in some ways of this of this book is to at least uh, open up a window onto the scholarship. And there is a lot of scholarship in Eastern Europe, uh, both coming out of scholars in Eastern Europe, anthropologists, sociologists, historians, psychologists, uh, a variety of different fields who are looking at the lived realities of state socialism prior to 1989 in Eastern Europe or 1991 in the Soviet Union. 
Um, and also the scholarship that has been done by Western historians, ethnographers, sociologists, psychologists, geographers, and a variety of people who are looking at the lived reality of, of the world um, that is now very quickly passing into for my students, at least at Penn, ancient history, as far as they're concerned. Um, it's only 30 years ago, but it sounds that, that that might as well be like World War II, as far as they're concerned, or ancient Greece. So I think that there's something about uh, the current political moment that we're in in the United States. Uh, we have young congresswomen like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who will be the youngest congresswoman entering uh, the 116th Congress soon. People like Ayanna Presley, uh, young socialists or democratic, self-declared democratic socialists. We also have, very importantly, people like Senator Bernie Sanders, who is standing up for democratic socialist ideas in a way that we haven't seen in the United States for many, many decades. And I think that the one of the results of the kind of particular political moment that we find ourselves in, which uh, is, I think, quite uh, strikingly polarized and vitriolic, is that people who are trying to discuss things like Medicare for all or housing as a human right or free public education uh, or trade school, um, they get bludgeoned over the head with Stalinism or with um, the realities of the, the purges and the gulags and the secret police and consumer shortages. And of course, uh, most importantly, Venezuela. Uh, I don't think I'm on a particular, uh, any particular forum where the word Venezuela doesn't show up about 400 times when I'm talking about like maternity leave policies in the GDR. And so I think that one of the things, and I think it's really important as a scholar, but also as somebody who is thinking about history as a, a body of knowledge that can actually inform the present and more importantly, inform the future. We're in a particular political moment. We're also in a particular historical and technological moment where the future is really uncertain. We hear every day about robots and AI and the, the mechanization and, and um, algorithmization of our jobs and our futures. And I think that we need the widest political toolkit possible to think about solutions to the future. And what is politics if not the politics of understanding how we can use the state as a tool for good, as something that can actually represent citizens' interests? That's what a democracy is about. And so I think that in writing this book and in trying to break out of my academic shell, which is a, a pretty hard shell to break out of, uh, and to speak to a, a broader audience, especially an audience, I think, of young people, what I am hoping to achieve or what I'm you know, hoping at least I can sort of chip away at is this idea that everything that we know about socialism is can be reduced to a particular stereotype that we in the West have about the, the 20th century. Um, I think that uh, 20th century state socialism was incredibly diverse, both, both historically as well as regionally. Um, Yugoslavia was a very different beast than the Soviet Union. Poland was very different from Bulgaria. Uh, if you go even beyond that, what we see is a lot of diversity. And I also think that it's important to understand that, yes, we can, you know, it's very easily easy to slip into this idea that we can reduce all of 20th century state socialism to Stalin's purges or the gulag. But the similar move on the on the other side would be to reduce the entire history of American capitalism to slavery or the um, Jim Crow. Right. Uh, we allow the history of capitalism and we allow the history of the West to be dynamic and changing over time. And yet at the same time, we turn around and we try to fix the history of socialism in one particular historical moment. So 
I know that I will be attacked. I have already been. I know that people will um, accuse me of being an apologist for Stalinism or hand-waving away all of the negative uh, things about 20th century state socialism. And I want to make very clear that I'm not doing that. That, um, and if you read the book, you will see that I'm very careful to say, look, there are plenty of things that are not good. There are plenty of things that we should reject. But I end the book with a call of to trying to get people to understand that there was a baby in the bathwater, right? That in 1989, when state socialism collapsed in Eastern Europe and when uh, communism collapsed in the Soviet Union in 1991, that there was this kind of Western triumphalist rush into the region. Francis Fukuyama called it the end of history. And uh, the idea that capitalism and liberal democracy was the end-all be-all of human existence and history, and we would all happily be um, integrated into this global market economy that would make us all rich and happy with lots of toys. And what we've seen, particularly since the 2008 uh, Great Recession, is that that didn't happen. And I think most strikingly, it didn't happen, particularly in Eastern Europe, where these countries were have been heavily uh, sort of brutalized by the global economy. Uh, a colleague of mine at Penn uh, are, are working on a, an, a project called the Social Impacts of Transition. And we actually see quite clearly, if we look at a variety of indicators, not only economic, but also demographic and in terms of, of, of poverty rates, a lot of countries in Eastern Europe have not achieved the standards of living in 2018 that they had in 1990 when communism collapsed. This is a pretty well-kept secret, but it's pretty clear if you look at the data. And so when people look at Eastern Europe and they wonder about the rise of right-wing governments in Poland or Hungary or in Russia, there's this big question or in, or in what is now the former eastern part of unified, reunified Germany, there's this real sense of questioning of like what's going on in this part of the world. And I think part of the story of what's going on in this part of the world is that the narrative that we've been told about the end of history, the triumph of liberal democracy and free market capitalism didn't really come true. It didn't really come true in Eastern Europe and it really has um, failed in many ways in the West, which is why a lot of young people, and there's a lot of consternation about this across the United States, are turning more and more to socialist ideas or to a reassessment of socialism. And I think that, again, people, young people, I think Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was born in October 1989. She was literally born a month before the Berlin Wall fell. So her reality about what socialism is, is very, very different from somebody like Nancy Pelosi, who I believe was born in 1940 before the United States even entered World War II, right? So we're talking about a big generational difference. And if we think of somebody like Dianne Feinstein, I think Dianne Feinstein was born in 1933, which is during the Great Depression, right? So if we look at our Congress today, if we look at the composition of our leaders, I think the median, the median age is 65. And so there's a huge generational gap. And I think that um, there's a, a real problem for older people who look at younger people in this country. Um, I'm, I'm just, you know, truth in advertising, I'm like Gen X. So like I'm right in the middle of these generations. 
Uh, and so I sort of feel like I'm on either side of, of this um, divide. But I think that there's a lot of horror on the part of the baby boomers looking at the millennials and Gen Z and thinking, oh, my God, don't they know about the horrors of socialism, 20th century socialism? And the young people are saying, oh, well, we don't know what you're talking about. All we really know is about like the Great Recession and our parents' houses being foreclosed upon and graduating from college with a mortgage worth of debt and not having health care and not being able to get a job beyond these random gigs driving Uber or doing, you know, um, Internet striptease in order to pay my rent. So I think that there's a, a real generational divide. And I think that one of the ways to heal this divide is to have an open and honest and informed discussion about what socialism is, what socialism was, and what socialism could be. And I'll just stop there and take lots of questions. About uh, the sort of the theory of care, the care labor market, mm -hmm. um, which I can sort of understand when you're talking about um, people who are caring for their own family or people they know. Um, so there's, so this is kind of a mind experiment or whatever, hypothetical. If all of the whole care labor market were all professionals who never took care of any of their own uh, family or anything, would the same theory apply? Wouldn't they just be professionals and compete like in any other? Why would they be in a disadvantage compared to other industries or other work? Other, other work. I'm not sure I understand the question. So you're talking about if, if we professionalized care work as in the private market rather than in the public market, right? So, yeah, so there's a difference. Right. So, so there's a difference between um, kind of the commodification of care work and um, somebody like uh, Sonia Michelle, who's in the audience, will, will talk about migrant labor. Um, somebody, uh, the, the idea that we can sort of outsource care work to people that are um, immigrants or people who are economically weaker than we are. And so we can pay them really minimal wages, which is often what happens with care work, not mm. only in the United States, but also in Western Europe. And the difference between sort of a public system of support, right, which is what, what I'm trying to talk about, which is a, the ways in which society would value care work independent of, of um who's like, who's actually doing it. The idea is that it should be done. It should be sort of a social good because children and, um, you know, care in our economy is uh, of great value, particularly children. When we think about future taxpayers and when we think about the graying right. of our economy, right, the graying of our population, there's a lot of care work that needs to be done. Look, when we think about uh, care work, broadly speaking, especially when we think about child care and elder care and care for the ill and infirm. Um, this is labor that often gets performed for free in the household, right? It's, it's done by women at home. If you look at the, the overall structures of the mm -hmm. economy, right, this work needs to be done. It's not work that disappears if somebody doesn't do no, it. Right. And so, like, people who work in restaurants, if people don't eat in restaurants, there, there aren't dishes oh, that you need to be washed, right? So, but I wanted to come back to your first question, which I thought was really interesting. And, and yeah, I mean, the title, one <clears throat> of the things about the title is that some of the reviewers have said, look, okay, it's a clickbaity title, but the book is actually full of, of facts. I think the, right. the Times of London basically said... Um, the book isn't as silly as the title suggests, right? So there's been a lot of blowback about the title. I, I do think that um, even though it may not have been my first choice for a title, 
It's an important um, yeah. it's an important issue because it's it's about what it means to have value outside of an economy which wants to commodify everything. Right. And so <clears throat> I do think that in some ways it represents the, yeah, the core I, arguments I of the book. Except I think it's good. Yeah. If you wanted to uh, not be bothered by people who are really concerned about Eastern Europe and their, I agree, erroneous sort of view of uh, what life was like, why not just deal with um, with Scandinavia? Why not focus on the Scandinavian experience? Is there any difference between, from the from your point of view, from the objectives of the book, between Scandinavian democratic socialism mm -hmm. and uh, in Eastern Europe? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I do think that the book does deal with um, Scandinavia. I do talk a fair amount about the uh, Scandinavian countries, particularly Iceland and Sweden, um, which have implemented some really progressive policies towards women. But I, but again, as I said in my little introduction, I think that one of the things that happens is that in this country, look, people called Obama a socialist. Obama was not a socialist. Obama wasn't even close to being a socialist, right? The right wing or uh, conservatives tend to use the word socialist as a weapon. They label people with that word. And they've done it for so long, I think, that in some ways they've almost defanged the word. Because it's sort of like the boy who cried wolf. If you keep calling everybody who wants banking regulations or who wants health care or who wants um, for students not to graduate with $100,000 in debt, like if you every time somebody says we need the government to actually provide a social safety net, if you say, oh, my God, we can't do that, that's socialism, we're going to be Venezuela, which is the general narrative, right? Um, I think that for a long time that that worked. That was a way to, 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 to quiet people. But what is happening now is that there's this younger generation, you know, and not only younger generation, because of course we gotta talk about Bernie Sanders here. He's not of the younger generation. But there is a generation of younger people coming up into politics who aren't afraid of that word. And so what has happened is rhetorically now, they're not just calling like a kind of boring garden variety left liberal socialist. Now they're saying that anybody who uses the word socialist is a Stalinist. Is, is like the most extreme form of Maoist, right? Um, and I think that, again, it's a cudgel to, to prevent people from talking about um, banking regulations or talking about having reasonable health care or talking about, you know, rent control in, in, in major cities where vast majority of the population can't afford to live. Working people can't afford to live. So, so the reason that I felt it was important to actually bring in the discussion of state socialism in Eastern Europe is precisely to say, hey, even there, it wasn't as bad as everybody wants you to think it was. It was bad. I'm not denying that there were really negative things. And I want to make that very clear. And I say that several times in the book. But I want to also say that there were certain policies, especially around women's issues, that I think we could learn from. You know, we could we could get rid of the bad, sure, you know, get rid of the baggage of, of these policies and the autocracy and the authoritarianism and take the core of these policies and try to find a way in our democracy to move forward. Yes, thank you. Your book is titled, Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism. Are you solely making a single gender argument or do men also have better sex under socialism? That's a great question. Asking for a friend. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? I've gotten this question before. 
Um, and, you know, I think that this is a really, really important question because obviously the answer is everybody has better sex under socialism. You should have made that the title. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're cutting off 50 percent of your potential <laughs> audience. Yeah. Um, and the reason and, you know, and, and if you if if you get into those chapters, right, the reason is that women's economic independence and um, creates a kind of egalitarianism in relationships that that frees people from the kind of commodified interactions that that sexual heterosexual relations in this country are increasingly having. So uh, are increasingly leaning towards. I have um, undergraduate students at Penn who are on websites like seekingarrangement.com where they have these sugar daddies who are helping them pay their tuition. You know, and I think that there's uh, there's an increasing sense that our what I call in the book affective resources, our emotions, our attentions, um, our affections are being increasingly dragged into the market. And so I think, you know, and I make this also very clear in the book that, that look, the 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 um, the careful exclusion of emotional interactions from market transactions is better for everybody, not just women. It's just that men disproportionately um, are not being burdened with care work in the way that women are. And so when we actually look at this on the ground, um, it's women who are doing the vast majority of the care work. And if the social welfare state shrinks, so here's the, the really obvious thing. In the United States, if we get rid of social security, right? Um, it's not as if old people are just gonna disappear Right. They're they're going to still be there and they're going to need care. And who's going to care for them? The vast majority of people that are going to be doing that care work are going to be daughters, wives, granddaughters, maybe. Um, but it's going to largely be women. And I think that um, so there are these disproportionate effects on women in the economy. But that being said, right. Ultimately. If we think about the quality of our relationships, and I know this is an empirical claim and many people may disagree with me and I'm happy to argue, you know, until the cows come home on this one. But I do, I do think, and I argue in the book that non-commodified human relationships are more, more satisfying for both men and women. And that includes, you know, people like uh, the queer population, that, tr that includes trans people. I mean, I'm very inclusive about this argument. The title itself is about women. The book itself is, you know, I'm very careful uh, to talk about what I mean by women, because, of course, that category itself can be contested. But I do think that um, everybody benefits when we have a broader social safety net, when we have more economic stability and security in this in this country. And um, and we can afford it. We're a very, very wealthy country and countries much poorer than us provide much better social safety nets than we do. Thank you. Hi, Kristen. Great presentation. I look forward to reading the book. I, I'm the aforementioned Sonia Michelle. Um, given the given the baggage that socialism has in this country, and I'm not sure it has. I don't think it's quite as salient as you suggest. I think we have so many other issues right now that people aren't really worrying about St encroaching Stalinism. But given that, you know, let let's just bracket that for the moment. Given that socialism may not be the best vehicle for bringing, and we're not about to have a socialist revolution in this country anytime <laughs> soon. What other arguments can you? advance for child care. I mean, as a, as a historian, I've written a book on the history of no child care in the United States. Right. I've seen many other arguments advanced for why we don't have it, especially the focus on individualism, the fact that children need mother's love. I mean, there are many ideologies that have been advanced. So um, 
uh, you know, and, the, and, 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 and in fact, in, at least once in our history, we did manage to have child, public child care during World War II. Exactly. So short of launching another world war, which I don't think anybody wants to do, what other, you know, what other arguments could you come up with, do you think? Right. No, I think there are plenty of cases uh, and, and, and good cases that have been made for child care. I mean, uh, my colleague at Bowdoin College, Rachel Connolly, who's a labor economist and looks at, you know, women's time use, she makes a really compelling argument about about the, the value of childcare to the children themselves, right? That um, we have good now empirical evidence that shows that ch- children actually do quite well in high quality childcare. There's also um, the quality of women's lives, right? The the um, the fact that when we have childcare, women are contributing to the economy, they're paying taxes, they're contributing to social security and supporting this graying population that I talked about. Um, there's all sorts of ways in which women's formal labor formal labor force participation is um, aided and abetted by a really robust uh, uh, child care, um, pr- provision of child care on a federal level. I mean, I think the big problem is that it's expensive. Um, and so they're always going to, they're, look, they're always going to be a push against the, the, the costs associated with child care. I mean, even as uh, you were mentioning, the, the private provision of child care, child care for a, you know, a, a young child is enormously expensive in this country. And many women are forced, even if they want to work, are forced to stay home because they can't afford the cost of private child care. So we're losing women's talents. Many of these women, um, have inv- we've invested in their uh, human capital. They have talents that could contribute to our economy. So I actually do think, you know, in my more generous moments, that there's a very compelling capitalist reason to be made for childcare, right? And in fact, many capitalist Western European countries that are facing declining birth rates are, um, are, are do see childcare, the provision of childcare, extended paid maternity leaves, and child allowances as a way to bolster their capitalist economies. But I think what I'm trying to say in the book is that um, rather than just talking about making our economy more efficient, which it may also do, I also want to talk about the ways in which women's economic independence in and of itself is a valuable good that it creates a a society of equals. It creates more freedom. Um, It actually gives people more opportunities. And we're supposed to be the land of opportunity and freedom and liberty, right? So why are we trapping women in, for instance, unhappy marriages? Because if they get divorced, they lose their health care, right? We we often talk about health care as something that traps people in their jobs, but we don't really think about the ways in which women who are dependent spouses lose their health care if they get divorced. And uh, and that's not that's not um, enhancing freedom. That's limiting our freedoms. So I could make I mean, I think many good arguments uh, have been made for for the the issue of child care and extended paid maternity leaves. I don't think that um, it's exclusively a socialist argument. And I agree with you that, um, you know, that this may not be the most strategically wise argument to make, right? It may get a lot of people's hackles up. But I will disagree about the, 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 the fact that social, look, the White House just a couple weeks ago released an official report from the Council of Economic Advisors called the Opportunity Costs of Socialism. And in this report, I don't know if anybody's aware of this report, they actually, um, they actually argue that socialism is bad because the cost of owning and maintaining a Ford Ranger extra large in Scandinavia is more than it is in the United States. I am not joking. You can look this up. 
right? So obviously, people are worried about this, um, about the of people about people like Ocasio Cortez. I mean, look, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez is very openly declaring her political position, um, and it, it it may be a straw man. It may be that um, that it's a, a bad strategic move. And again, I'm I I don't. Um, pretend to be an expert on American politics. Um, but I do think that um, while there's a very important capitalist argument to be made, and there's also maybe a very important moral argument to be made about childcare, right? Um, in terms of equalizing young children's ability to thrive in our economy, we know that the inequality in early education can linger over the course of children's lives, and that this is an this is an incredible way in which inequality in our society is sustained over a long term. So there's also a moral argument, um, but I think that it's it's also worth talking about. Look, the the history of some of these policies are socialist. You know, Lily Brown in the middle of the of the 19th century, when she's talking about maternity insurance, she's coming at it from a socialist feminist angle. And so, even if those policies end up being incorporated into capitalist societies, there are these important roots that we should pay attention to. And I, I'm hoping that by understand by by educating people and understanding where these policies came from and how they can be incorporated, um, that we don't we don't have to have an authoritarian state to have child care, which is unfortunately sometimes what people suggest. Well, so given the, that there are many rational arguments to be made for child yeah. care, is it, is it is it the aversion to socialism you think that's preventing them from being If we prevailing? look at the 1972 Nixon veto, yeah. that piece that of legislation. that was just one time, yeah. That, yeah, but that was probably the t closest we got in this country was yeah. 1972. And it was definitely, I think, about the fear of government indoctrination of young children, which was ultimately but a since result. Since then, of, women's participate, labor force participation has skyrocketed. Yeah, and we still haven't. We still got, haven't got right. it. And yeah, I don't want to monopolize the conversation. Yeah. but it, it's a longer. It's a great. But. It's a great issue, but it may be right that ultimately people. I mean, okay, I, I'm also open. I'm, I also admit that there are many women who probably want to stay home with their children and be primary caregivers, um, and that's fine. But the fact that many women stay home and are forced to be primary givers, caregivers because they can't afford childcare or because there is no childcare is not an ideal situation anywhere in the world. So my question is, uh, in your book, you have this all this kind of visionary sort of quality. And so I'm asking you now if you would share, because I'm not a historian, I don't really understand, I'm just kind of a woman who's been trying to deal with a lot of the stuff you're talking about. And um, I don't really know what it's really like. Like, so I'm just curious, like when you talked about um, the social safety net state services helping women, right? Mm -hmm. um, so what's that actually like? Like, for example, um, if I was in my, my neighborhood, like I can imagine where I had my kids young and I would have loved to have childcare like in the neighborhood with other neighbors' kids. In fact, we formed our own little a little trade group, which was a big pain to organize, but we did it because we needed it so bad and our kids were better off for it, like three mm -hmm. or four families. But I'm just really curious what it's like, like, for example, I mean, this would apply to so many things, but just in a really concrete way, like, how could it happen if we were to, like, do it tomorrow? Like, like, would my kid have to be bussed off somewhere or would my kids actually be with their neighbors, like on the block or what would it feel like day to day? Mm -hmm. And 
kind of a little corollary question. Do you feel that it's a possibility that there might be a kind of a synthesis just in a sort of visionary mode between capitalism and socialism so we could really have some of each, like a kind of combination of a gift economy? And mm-hmm. the gift economy sometimes needs money because, you know, you yeah. give one part of the gift earlier than another part, so the money is useful. But that doesn't mean that you can't have real gift economy going on. Right. And, you know, so many people I know would be a lot happier with a gift economy. And, you know... Or I, I think, you know, ideally, is there a possible sort of synthesis of all of these things? Right. And I'll take the answer sitting down. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I think um, so. That's one of the things that I say very directly in the book, I think, is that there's a way in which there's, you know, there's a middle there's a middle way, right? Almost a sort of like, you know, Buddhist thing, like the the middle path, right? Which is that in some ways, you know, um, complete socialism would be undesirable for a variety of reasons having to do with individualism and freedom and liberty. And complete unregulated capitalism is is really undesirable because it it undermines the feelings of collectivity and the, the social value of, of care work and, and things and emotions and uh, relationships that happen outside of the market. So I do definitely, you know, advocate for some kind of of middle way. But look, I mean, I'm not proposing a particular solution. I think, you know, some of the brightest minds of the last 200 years have been grappling this, with this question. And it's not for me to, 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 to propose a pretty easy solution, because I think if there was an easy solution, it would have been found already. Yeah, yeah. So in that case, my first question is probably the more important one yeah. anyway, because it helps. I, I always feel like you can't really go somewhere unless you know where you're going. Right, right. So I'm just really curious, like if it was all of a sudden, you know, a mixture right. with some socialism on my street, tomorrow, what right. would it be like in terms of childcare and other things? Yeah. And again, I think, you know, here's where... Uh, to how come could it maybe first? happen? Yeah. Like if you're writing science fiction, sure. <laughs> how could it maybe happen? Because you are an educated guesser more right. than anybody else. Right. I know. So, I mean, again, I think that this is where we could look to places like Sweden and Iceland, for examples, right? Where you have state provision of childcare, but it's very local, right? And it's also combined with um, extended paid job protected maternity leaves so that when children are very young, Right. They they are given, you know, direct maternal care or paternal care, because, of course, in Sweden, it's it's now required that fathers stay home for at least six months, I believe. Um, And so so it's a combination of these policies. Right. So I do think that there's a way in which it would be local. It wouldn't. Yeah. You wouldn't like send your kid off to Siberia or whatever the stereotype would be or Alaska right, to be raised. And then they would ship them back to you at 18 and be like, hey, here's your kid. Right. That's the that's the stereotype. Um, or that preschools are all about indoctrination. I mean, I think that most preschools are about playing, right, or, or, or teaching kids to read or socializing them with other children. I mean, I had my own daughter in childcare, and it was a great situation. She was really well cared for, and she loved it. I never felt like when I dropped her off, you know, she was screaming to, to, to go home with me. In fact, Sometimes I kind of wished she would be a little bit more reticent to leave. You know, she was like, bye, mom, I'm going to have some fun with these cool toys over here and these other kids. Um, So I do think that, look, plenty of people in the United States already have their children in full time child care. It's not as if this is a foreign concept. The idea is to reduce the cost so that it's accessible to more people and so that more women have access to the kinds of lives and careers that they desire. That's the big problem. And given that children are a social good. They contribute, they pay taxes, they contribute to social security, there are future employees, there are future, you know, soldiers if we ever go to war or whatever. You know, everybody understands. I mean, people in the United States are already starting to worry about the declining birth rate, right? So 
you know, there's a, there's a lot of discussion about why the birth rate is declining. But I think, again, the, the issue here is that children are of great social value to our society. And we do not value them. We devalue them. And we put all of that work into the private sphere where we expect women to do it for free. And again, to come back to Sonia's point, I do think there are other arguments for why childcare will be a good thing. So your question about how different it would be is that it wouldn't be all that different, right? It would be sort of like what we probably already have in a lot of places, except for that it wouldn't be as expensive and it would be much more acceptable for women to leave their children in childcare. Look, and we can, we can do this by looking very closely at the cultures in Eastern and Western Germany around childcare. In Western Germany, it was very common for women to stay home with their young children. In Eastern Germany, it was much more common for women to put their children in creches and kindergartens. Um, and that culture was a real clash after reunification, right? Um, and uh, what it really ultimately meant is that, you know, and I've, I've spoken to West German women who say, thank goodness, I even talk about this in the book, thank goodness for these East German women, because when they moved West, they expected to have childcare. And they forced the local German municipalities to create creches and kindergartens because they they, they didn't have the clue about staying home with their children. Every child was supposed to go to a kindergarten. So I do think it's about social expectations that would change. I also think that, you know, men also change their attitudes around this. Like if there's a good kindergarten, then it's not that unreasonable for a child to go to a daycare. So it's it's not like, you know, I mean, the, the idea of socialized ch childcare is such a radical concept. Maybe it sounds radical. I hope, I hope I'm not making it sound so radical because it's actually pretty garden variety. It's just that we don't have it and we've come close. And, and as, as Sonia pointed out, we have so many women in the labor force, um, but we've never managed to solve, uh, solve this problem. Yes. Thank you for uh, being here this evening. Um, I'm interested in the intersection of technology policy and socialist policy. Sure. And I'm curious, that, I mean, it seems like you know, the solutions on the face are kind of obvious of just like having childcare available and that sort of thing. But I'm curious what what technology policies I'm I'm not thinking of are would impact. I mean, I guess one thing I thought it was like in Japan having robots caring for elders. Um, mm -hmm. But that seems a bit extreme and a bit like, I don't know, it's weird for our culture. So maybe things that are, would be a bit more just general. And right. also if there are any lessons that could be learned from like Eastern European um, socialism along those lines. Well, I mean, of course, there's that there's a bit of an anachronistic problem here, right? Because our technology in 2018 around robotics and algorithms is way more advanced than right anything um, that existed in the 20th century. Um, and I don't think anybody is really keen to have robo-nannies anytime soon, right? Uh, or even in Japan, the care work for the elderly is probably going to be mechanized, mm -hmm. right? I mean, we have pretty good, they have pretty good technology around this. And it turns out that like company, even if it's a robot company is really good. Um, but, but the one thing I think that um, in the circles of people that I, you know, have kind of, you know, random coffee conversations with, you know, one of the big questions is what is going to happen when so many of our jobs are t mechanized? Um, and this could be driverless cars, this could be all sorts of, of, of kind of um, services and otherwise, you know, easy, repetitive jobs that, that could easily be done by, by robots or um, technology. 
And so, you know, the Silicon Valley solution uh, and the solution that's gotten a lot of discussion is universal basic income or what's called a citizen's dividend, where, you know, the, the government or, you know, our kind of like capitalist overlords who own the robots give us, you know, $800 or $1,000 a month to kind of do what we want while they live in their mansions up on Mars or something like that, um, you know, luxuriating in, you know, um, their their extreme wealth. So the, the other discussion, and I think this is a discussion that's really interesting to me is about creating a kind of sovereign wealth fund on the model of Alaska or Norway. Um, does, if you don't know what the sovereign wealth fund is, it's um, in, in places like Alaska, Norway, where there are mineral resources, those mineral resources, uh, the wealth from that is transferred to the state and then the state basically distributes that to the, to the population. So, um, so some people have talked about you know, social ownership of the robots, right? So that the technology is collectively owned by society and that 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 the wealth generated from those robots goes into a sovereign wealth fund and then the sovereign wealth fund gets distributed, which is a much more kind of egalitarian way of thinking of it than UBI. Um, but I do think, you know, and so they call, you know, these people call themselves like techno-communists or techno-socialists or whatever. Um, and there's, you know, there are memes all over the internet about fully automated space whatever, um, socialism. So I do think that technology, I think part of the reason that people are so open-minded to any kind of political solution in this historical moment is the threat and the fear of the technological like onslaught that's coming our way and what's going to happen when we have a bunch of surplus humanity who don't have opportunities for employment. I mean, that's going to be soon, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I, I do think that um, that's that again is and I say I say this at the end of the book, that I do think that the, the particular historical contingency and circumstances that we find ourselves in right now um, requires us to be really open minded about political solutions and just sticking to the straight and narrow of a kind of really fundamentalist view of free market capitalism is not going to serve us very well in the long run, which is why so many young people are open to different vision of the future. Cool. Thank you. Hello, thank you for coming out. Um, I'm a graduate student in anthropology here at AU, and I'm curious as to how your training as an anthropologist informed your approach to the book and some of the challenges that you had writing a book for a more popular audience and whether or not you think um, anthropologists in the U.S. should be focusing more on uh, Eastern Europe and post-Soviet countries. Okay, wow. that's a, Those are great questions. Um, so I will say, I'll start with the middle one first, because it was really hard to write a book like this. Um, I was initially given a 35,000 word limit, which is like, you don't even clear your throat with an academic book in 35,000 words, right? That's like your lit review and your methodology and maybe a few paragraphs of an introduction. Um, and I ended up fighting, uh, I think as, uh, as Annie mentioned, like um, the book has full endnotes, <laughs> very copious endnotes and a, and a pretty um, good uh, further reading section. So I, because I really wanted to document every single claim that I make in the book. This is not a piece of, of opinion uh, or, a, you know, a, a just a, a kind of like general thoughts about such and such. Right. I really try to root ground this in the work of some incredible scholars who have done work, anthropologists and historians who have done work in the region. Um, and so it was not easy. 
Um, and it is, it is risky. That's the other thing, I think, um, is that, you know, for somebody like me who has written six other very kind of boring state academic books to kind of break out of that register and try to talk to a popular, more popular audience really opens me up to an incredible amount of criticism from my colleagues. So that that also felt a little bit um, I was I still feel very vulnerable about having made that decision. Why um, Eastern Europe? I think I think every anthropologist should spend some time in Eastern Europe. I think that Eastern Europe and the post-Soviet space is one of the most important places in the world right now um, because it is the place, you know, for better or worse, that actually experienced a full-fledged, truly worked out alternative to capitalism. And whether you think that's a good or bad ex experience or history, it existed and given that um, we're in a moment where capitalism is 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 very vulnerable and and it feels like we're kind of patch it's like a boat that's got lots of leaks in it and we're slapping you know patches here and there to try to prevent it from sinking, um, it, it's really useful to go and look at places in the world where there's like a there was a different vision of the economy, and and that comes back to your first question, which is I think as an ethnographer. Um, <sighs> You know, I, I think it's really easy. And, I, and as I said earlier, I'm working on a project right now with a colleague of mine who's a political scientist and um, on the social impacts of transition. And, you know, I went into it as an ethnographer. The ethnographic scholarship on the region is very negative because ethnographers tend to hang out with poor and disenfranchised people. Political scientists tend to fly in. I mean, I'm making a generalization here, but a lot of political scientists, not all of them, sorry, Robin, <laughs> tend to fly in and, and talk to elites um, and they get a very different perspective, um, especially, and economists are even worse, right? So there's a disjuncture between the historical narrative of like, Western, like you know, communism collapsed and uh, liberal democracy came and free markets came and everything was wonderful in Eastern Europe and we brought democracy and freedom, and it was great. Um, and because that narrative existed, I think we subsequently made a lot of mistakes, for instance, in maybe the Middle East, in the Arab Spring, and so on and so forth. So I think that the, the value of ethnography, um, for me at least, was try, is, 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 is the focus on everyday experience. That there is a narrative about um, the, the, the collapse of communism, about the evils of communism in Eastern Europe, about all of the problems of communism. But then there's this sort of sub-narrative, this personal experience that often gets written out. And this is not just my work. Again, I stand on the shoulders of incredible giants in my field who have done amazing field work in countries like Romania and Bulgaria and the former Soviet Union and Poland. There are so many great ethnographies, as well as historians who have done this work. So so for me, I think I, I came to it um, as a scholar, but this is not a scholarly book, right? It's meant as a more popular book, um, but I did really try to root it in the scholarship. And really importantly, I wanted to point to the work of my colleagues because so many of my colleagues have done such amazing work in this part of the world that I really want people to go and read their books too. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Hello. Uh, thank you for coming and talking about your book. Thank you. Um, I have a question, I guess, uh, point of information. If any of the policies that you saw in the um, former socialist republics or in any social democratic system succeeded um, not only in, I guess, reducing the burden of childcare, mm -hmm. um, specifically on uh, women, but also the sort of house maintenance, like the cooking and cleaning mm -hmm. that would take place whether or not they had children, right. if there was any interaction between those two. 
Absolutely. Um, and so, I mean, again, I, this is like my bread and butter. I could talk about this till the cows come home. But um, but yeah, so in the early uh, in the early socialist period um, in the 20s in the Soviet Union, there was an attempt to create public laundries and public canteens and mending cooperatives. Right. So it wasn't only about child care. I, I've talked about child care because that was the excerpt that I read. But in the book, I talk a lot more broadly about other sorts of, of, of services. And I do think um, that we you know, we have a very good sense of of um, how certain kinds of domestic work, not just childcare, right, um, can be socialized more effectively. You know what I, I mean? Think about it. I tell this to my students at Penn, right? Like they all eat in dining halls, right? They all live in dorms and they all eat in dining halls. And like, that's the socialization of meals, right? I mean, it doesn't feel like it because you're a college student and that's what you do. But it is like, it ends up being an economy of scale. You go, you eat, you get food, you leave your dishes, somebody else cleans them. It's great. I mean, that's just done in the private sphere, but it could easily be done uh, in other ways. And as, 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 as Sonia Michelle pointed out, a lot of these policies were actually put into place during World War II when the United States government needed women in the, in the labor force. I'm going to take one more question real quick. Yeah, okay. Thank because, you. yeah, it's not fair. <laughs> um, so, sorry for coming at the end. Thank you very much. Congratulations on the book. Thanks for, thanks for your presentation. I have two questions. One of them is simple but will be hard to answer. And the other one is a complicated question that might be easier to answer. And I have to admit, before the second question, I haven't actually read the book yet. I've read the op-ed, and I don't think that they have very much to do with each other at all. No. Um, so the first, uh, and you can answer both or one or whichever one you choose. Um, the first simple question actually... Uh, takes us away from the risk of simplifying your entire book to childcare, which I don't know if that is actually the the only issue in your no. book. Um, and this is a question based on something you said earlier in your presentation about capitalism, um, that you don't want to simplify everything. You don't want to throw the baby out with the bath, bath water, right? You don't want to simplify everything in socialism to the things about it that were bad. Mm -hmm. The same way you don't want to simplify the history of capitalism in the United States to uh, racism, to, to you know slavery and Jim Crow mm -hmm. and, other, and racist right. policies. And I want to ask you if that's really true, because I think many of the problems in the United States today, and I think probably when we discuss this at more length later, we will agree, actually stem from exactly those problems. Yeah. So that's the simple question that is going to be harder to answer. Absolutely. Um, yeah. The more complicated question that will, might be easier for you to answer is, uh, was kind of introduced by the colleague before me, um, as an ethnographer, too. Um, uh, but speaking mostly, you know, and, and because of that, speaking most, mostly anecdotally, but I think also on the basis of the statistics, um, if, you know, the title of the book is about women, as the other colleague pointed out. Mm -hmm. um, anecdotally, in my experience, and statistically speaking, as far as I know, in terms of Bulgaria and the former Soviet Union, at the end of the day, women weren't actually that much. So they might have been better off than they were in the 1930s mm -hmm. by the 50s. But they didn't ever actually achieve equality, which is one reason that there's not equality there today. And in fact, the care industries, to include medicine, you know, doctors, mm -hmm. which were a very low paid and not very well respected profession in those in those societies, were mostly women. And mm -hmm. the women who worked in factories weren't the directors. And to the extent that women were directors, it was in service industries like running a daycare or tourism. Right. 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 Which, you know, quite well. Yeah. Um, so. Why? Is it really better? 
Right. And so this is a, okay. So that is a, you're right. This is, these are two hard questions to answer at the very end of the, of the, of the Sorry. presentation. But the first, I mean, I'm going to answer the second one first, because I do think that, again, it's about absolutes versus relative. And I think that when we look at, especially if we look at, for instance, the technology sector or the percentage of women in this part of the world that are engineers, professions that are in the United States, apparently, you know, in, you know, incompatible with being a woman, right? If you listen to um, this guy at Google, um, we actually see that there was a lot of uh, women in um, in parts of the economy, it's not just tourism, right? And it's not just um, service sector because it was also banking. It was also um, the judiciary is very feminized, right? Right. Now, I do agree, right, that there the, the wages are um, because uh, the socialist economies valued, uh, you know, kind of hard labor over the sort of soft white collar sector. But I do think, as I argue in the Red Riviera, right, that there's a way in which in the transition to capitalism, that human capital becomes really valuable. I do think that st we actually do have a very good sense of the statistics. And what we look at is, um, is the extent to which women were economically independent. And even if, right, the wage gap was there, and it was there, and there was very much a gender segregation of labor. I talk about this in the book. But what we see is all of the social services actually allowed women to be independent and allowed women to leave unsatisfying relationships, abusive and unsatisfying relationships. That um, constellation of factors that allowed women to be economically independent, which is why the subtitle of my book is And Other Arguments for Economic Independence, does decline precipitously after 1989. And, or 1991, depending on where you are in the Eastern Bloc, um, and I and 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 that's becoming more and more apparent as time goes on, right? Generationally speaking, um, the first question was about oh, uh, slavery and Jim Crow. <laughs> Yeah. And, and I think you're, I do think, yeah, this is a longer conversation, but you're absolutely right. It is a really important part of our history and it does have incredibly important reverberations today. And it turns out to, to remain the basis of everything that's wrong. Uh, for Yes, absolutely. But when you talk about the history of the United States or the history of capitalism, people aren't most sort of popular discourses do not fix it at that particular point. That's what I was trying to say. Hmm. The way that in, po I mean, it may be that we actually should be fixing it in these particular mo moments in time um, because of the historical reverberations that continue to this day and that create sort of the underpinnings of an unjust, you know, uh, initial distribution of wealth in this country that has been really, really hard to correct. Um, but I was talking more rhetorically, right, in the sense that when people talk about 20th century state socialism, they want to fix it at a particular moment in the 1930s. Um, but the same sort of move would not be done in a popular way with the history of the United States or the history of capitalism more broadly, because we could also include like the United Kingdom and the kinds of, you know, the Boer War, war and all the sorts of things that the UK got up to the famines in Bengal, right? Um, but we don't do that. We tend to think of, um, we tend to think of these things as more f fluid and dynamic and that, oh yes, these are sort of some nasty parts of our past, but we've moved forward, we've got progress and we've, we've put those behind us, right? Um, I mean, not that we have, but I'm just saying that that's the rhetoric, right? That yeah. you can't fix the history of the United States in these kind of ugly historical moments in our past. So I do think that um, ultimately it's important to, I mean, there's a difference between having like a, a nuanced conversation about, you know, what is really going on in the world and the, the rhetorical strategies that people use to discredit certain political ideologies. And what I'm trying to say in my presentation and, and I try to argue in the book is it's more about the rhetorical strategies than it is about like, you know, whether, you know, what's really at the root of the, of the, of the problems that we see in 2018 with 
global neoliberal capitalism. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for your Thank question. you very much. Yeah. Okay. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.